KPBS On Demand is supported by the National Conflict Resolution Center. Topics like political polarization and hybrid work policies can create workplace conflict. NCRC can help workplace leaders navigate divisive issues with the culture, communication, and conflict certificate. More at ncrconline.com. When Emma Sanchez heard a judge say she couldn't go home, at first the words just did not register. No sabía qué iba a pasar. No creía que fuera verdad lo que estaba escuchando. She didn't think it was real, but eventually it sunk in. Emma was being barred from going back to the U.S. for 10 years, despite the fact that she'd been living there with her three kids, all U.S. citizens, and she was married to a Marine vet. Once her new reality hit her, Emma plunged into despair. She didn't want to drag her husband down with her, so she told him to just go. Yo le dije a mi esposo, ¿sabes qué? Pues nos divorciamos. Dije yo, ¿cómo voy a vivir aquí y tú allá? Es muy duro. She insisted they should get a divorce and that he should find a new, easier life without her in it. I wasn't sure what was going to happen to me once I was going to be released. Javier Salazar served his time. For the last few years of his 12-year sentence, he'd even risked his life fighting some of California's biggest fires as an inmate firefighter. But immigration officials, they didn't care about Javier's firefighting or time served. They wanted him gone. ICE came and get me, and they formally rearrested me. They took me into an ICE detention. Eventually, Javier was put on a bus to Tijuana. Terrified and heartbroken, he had to leave his family behind. You know, it's, it's hard to survive right here. It was hard to deal with my separation anxiety and being part of a separated family. From KPBS and PRX, this is Port of Entry, where we tell cross-border stories that connect us. I'm Alan Liliental. Today, we continue our series on cross-border love stories with two couples separated by that border and the love keeping them together. KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com. Stories about families separated while trying to cross the U.S.-Mexico border really started making international headlines back in 2017. Family separation. The Trump administration has continued to separate migrant children. Parents of 545 children 
cannot be found. That's when the Trump administration first piloted a program that separated migrant parents from their children as a cruel way to try to deter migration. Protests against the policy popped up in San Diego and across the country. The only way that we can keep our families together is if we end the practices of Jeff Sessions, the Department of Justice, and ICE, and end that agency completely. So this Trump policy was by far the most brazen example of how the U.S.-Mexico border separates families. But actually, U.S. immigration policies have been driving wedges between families for a very long time. Se me hizo hermoso, se me hizo maravilloso. Veía las calles todas limpiecitas. That's Emma again, describing how much she liked the U.S. when she first crossed. Todo muy bonito, las tiendas enormes, la gente muy linda. Me encantó el país, me encantó su gente, me encantó. Emma Sanchez came from Mexico to the U.S. after she got certified to be a dental technician in Guadalajara. She tried to get a job here, but her certification didn't count in the U.S. So instead, she started taking English classes. El lugar, cuando llegué aquí, me enamoré del, del lugar. Pero yo traía mi idea de regresarme. Yo pensaba, okay, a lo mejor algún día regreso de vacaciones aquí. Emma says she fell in love with the U.S., but she didn't plan to stay without going through the proper immigration channels. She says it sort of just never happened. First time I saw her, like, wow, nice lady. She was walking uh, very nicely, walk, uh, said hi respectfully, you know. Part of the blame falls on this guy, Michael Paulson. And I just looked and I said, wow, nice looking girl. And I said, but I'm too old for her. <laughs> Ten years older than she was. Pues lo veía grande, pero, pero lo veía guapo. <laughs> Y empecé a verlo por la puerta de, de entrada del taller que él pasaba de un lado a otro. Y nomás le veía su, su cabello brillar con el sol y, y que caminaba con su teléfono y pasaba y volteaba y me saludaba. Hi. This was 21 years ago. Michael didn't speak much Spanish back then and Emma didn't speak any English. But the two went out anyway. To communicate, they used a little translation device that Emma had from one of her English classes. Yeah, there was like uh, some mix-ups with words. <laughs> we started dating. There was uh, hambre and hombre. I didn't know the difference. <laughs> <laughs> hambre means you're hungry. Hombre means a guy. And I thought she wanted another guy. And I'm going, huh. And it turned out she was hungry and everything. So that was kind of embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> A few dates into their relationship, Emma told Michael she was undocumented. She broke it to me and said, I don't have papers. <laughs> and I said, I don't care. <laughs> I said, you're here in the United States. At that point, it was too late. He was just totally, hopelessly in love. Just two short months after they first met on that day back in 2000, Michael made his move. I got on my knee and I said, will you marry me? And I gave her a, an engagement ring. She looked at me and she screamed. She goes, yes. And I said, oh, good. <laughs> I 
Emma and Michael got married in a civil ceremony in Vista, a city in Southern California. Not long after that, they had their first baby, then another, and then one more, all boys. For the most part, fixing Emma's immigration status just sort of fell off the couple's list of priorities. The babies kept them very busy. Pues cuando eres joven todo te vale, ¿no? Eres muy atrevido, ¿no? No piensas en las consecuencias y... Ah, todo está light, todo bien, ¿no? A mí no me preocupaba no tener papeles, no me preocupaba de que, oh, me va a agarrar la migra, o oh, me van a deportar. Ni siquiera pensaba en eso. Emma says she was young and she really didn't think being undocumented was that big of a deal. Michael thought they'd eventually get around to addressing the problem. And since they were married, they both assumed it'd be an easy fix. Yeah, I, I thought it was going to be a... Walking apart. <laughs> Boy, was I surprised. <laughs> I was born in Tijuana, Baja California. My mother brought me to Oakland, California when I was about seven months old. To Javier Salazar, Oakland is home. It's where he grew up from the time he was a baby. And even though his Mexican mom only spoke Spanish in the house and kept her Mexican customs and traditions alive, he says he's always felt just as American as all his homies. One of my first memories uh, of my first day in school was that my teacher introduced me to the class in English. And at that time, I remembered that I understood her perfectly and I was able to communicate with the class in English. So I'm not too sure when I remembered uh, English, but I, I believe I picked it up on playing outside with, with my friends as a little kid. To me, there was no difference between me and my friends. I didn't see any difference. But Javier eventually learned that he was a little different than his friends. Like Emma, he was undocumented. And he found that out in this really bizarre and frankly sort of crazy way. When I was uh, 11 years old, my mother took me to a family party. It was a quinceanera right here in Tijuana. So they brought me over here. Um, we were over here for about a week. And on the way back, everybody was loading up in the van to go home, to go back to Oakland. Uh, I tried to get in the van, and my mom kind of cut me short. And she was like, whoa, 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 you're not going to go with us in the van? And I was like, well, why not? And she told me, well... Uh, you don't have any papers, so you're going to have to try to cross the border uh, with your cousin. And we're going to wait for you on the other side. And at the time, you know, I, w I was shocked. You know, I didn't, I never knew that I was undocumented, right? So this was clearly an irresponsible thing for a mom to do to her son. But this was back in the 90s. And even though there were lots of better ways to get him across, you got to understand that the border was just a different beast back then. I mean, there wasn't even a finished border fence here in San Diego until 1993. And even then, the border was still pretty easy to cross, with or without papers. We ended up trying to cross through the, through the hills. Everybody was running, border patrol, the helicopter... They were on horses and ATVs. And I remember I got separated from my cousin. I was, I was 11 years old. I remember hiding in a ravine and the helicopter found me and um, they arrested me and they took me to like a little immigration jail. They had me there overnight. 
I was there um, just for processing, and they kicked me out the next morning. At the time, I was like the only kid in the holding cell. They had me in there with all the adults. So when they released me, I kind of found my way back to my grandparents, and my grandparents took me to the border that same night. And I tried it again, and the next time I made it across. When Javier turned 16, he finally fixed his immigration status. He went back to Mexico for a short time, then applied to be a permanent resident. Once he was approved, he moved right back to Oakland, ready to get on with his life. By the time Javier was in his early 20s, he was working two jobs. He had his own apartment, and he had a girlfriend who he really loved. It wasn't a glamorous life, but he was happy enough. His girlfriend, though, struggled with health problems, pretty severe seizures. And one day, he found her unconscious on the floor. I was living here for, with her for almost five years. One day, I just went outside to walk the dog, and I came back, and I just found her like that. It looked like she had a stroke. I was kind of like in shock to tear truth. Um, I called the ambulance. The ambulance came. They were trying to resuscitate her. They took her to the hospital, and by the time I got to the hospital, she was already gone. Javier still remembers how his girlfriend's hand was clenched up tight, frozen in a fist that day he found her on the apartment floor. It's a moment that's burned into his brain forever. He says he just broke. Something happened inside of me. I got really depressed. I had all these emotions inside of me I didn't know how to deal with. Javier just stopped caring. He was just 24, but he couldn't see a future without his girlfriend in it. So I started, you know, I fell into doing drugs and, you know, I just fell in the bad crowd. And to tell you the truth, at the time, I I was like in a self-destruct mode. You know, when I would cross the street, I wouldn't look before I crossed. I wasn't trying to commit suicide. But in my heart, I was like, you know what, if the car hits me when I cross the street, well, I don't really care anymore, you know? Just three months after Javier switched into self-destruct mode, he landed in prison. I started stealing to support my habit. He got a 12-year sentence for robbing a convenience store. He had a gun on him. He didn't use the gun, but just the fact that he had it meant a mandatory 10-year minimum sentence.
so I had a lot of time to think of of what happened and I had a lot of time to reflect and to change my way of thinking you know while I was while I was incarcerated you know I tried to take advantage of all the programs that they had to offer and that's where I finally had the opportunity to get my GED. And there was one other big change for Javier too. Midway through his first year behind bars, something unexpected happened. I started dreaming that he kept on telling me to go to his mom's house. It was weird. This is Joanna Garcia. And I would wake up from my dream and went back to sleep and the dream would continue. So I decided to go look for his mom and try to get his information so I could write to him. And we did. And we went to visit. I wanted to see and help out and support him in any way possible that I could because he was always there when I needed him. Javier and Joanna have known each other since they were kids. They were such good friends that Joanna asked Javier to be the godfather of one of her three kids she has with an ex. And during those early visits to prison and through the letters they exchanged, they both started seeing each other as a little more than just friends. We would write, and he made me feel comfortable. She started coming to visit me. We started making that connection that we finally got together as a couple. You know, so she was she was there with me throughout my whole incarceration. And she's been here for me during this whole process. That's that's amazing. Must have been a strong, strong love. Yes. Well, I knew I knew her for a long time, you know, so I really cared for her a lot already. So it wasn't um, it wasn't hard to to fall in love with her, you know. I felt the the need that you know he had for somebody to care for him and I felt that he cared for me. So, you know, I decided that you know I was going to go through with this, not knowing what was, what was going to happen. Not knowing he was going to get deported. Um, but I just went through with it. We got to take a break. But when we come back, how both couples kept their love alive despite being physically separated by the border. KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com. So back to Michael and Emma. The couple was married, raising their three young boys in Southern California. And they were happy. But they also knew they had to get her citizenship straightened out. By the time their third baby was born, they had filed all their paperwork. And after a long wait, she finally got word that she would need to travel outside the country to an appointment with immigration authorities at the U.S. consulate in Ciudad Juarez, the Mexican border town just south of El Paso. This was back in 2006. And it didn't dawn on me. Monday was going to be 666, June 6, 2006. And I was like, boy, that's a bad day. (laughs) 
And sure enough, it turned out to be the worst days of my life. Immigration told us that she has to wait out of the country 10 years before she is entitled to reapply to come into the country. And I said, well, I'm married to her. I have three boys. What am I going to do? He goes, I, I'm, I have nothing to say for you, sir. I'm sorry. That's the way the law is. And uh, I can't help you out. That's it. Next. Emma had entered the United States without papers in 2000. Before that, she had attempted to walk through the San Isidro port of entry, but border agents turned her away. The judge looked at her case as though she had two illegal entries, so he barred her from re-entering the United States for a decade. Emma decided she'd take the kids to live in Los Cabos, where her brother worked as a doctor. Híjole, no sabes qué difícil es cuando salí de Ciudad Juárez. Todo el camino, súper deprimida, no dejaba de llorar como Magdalena la sufrida. Emma is saying here that she couldn't stop crying, and she says she was super depressed. Her oldest boy was five at the time, her middle child three, and her baby just a few months old. At first, the kids were fine. They just thought they were on a vacation. But after a few weeks, they started really missing their dad. Emma's saying the kids started asking about their dad, asking when they could see him again. Michael, of course, missed his kids and wife, too. He called almost every single day. We had Sprint telephone bills like $1,500 a month. It was ridiculous. <laughs> Long story short, I said, this isn't working. I need my boys and my wife close to me. I can't even see them growing up. And I said, I'm going to do something about it. So I went online and I started checking out places in Tijuana for rent. And I found one for uh, $500 a month and $500 deposit. And I talked to the owner, and I met him, and I gave him a deposit and gave him the first month's rent. He gave me the keys, and then I called him. I said, I have a place. Come on up from Cabos to Tijuana. That way you're closer to me. My neighborhood out here, La Sanchistahuada, has a really bad reputation. Right? It's considered like one of the most dangerous neighborhoods in all of Tijuana. On November 20th, 2014, Javier was just a few weeks out of prison. And instead of getting to go home to be with Joanna and the kids, he was deported to Mexico. He walked off a bus in San Diego through the big steel U.S.-Mexico border fence and into Tijuana. All he had on him was his legal paperwork and a few photos. Mexican immigrant officials handed him a calling card and a bad lunch, and that was it. I mean, imagine this moment for a second. You walk through the gate into a country you might have left when you were just a baby. 
you maybe don't even speak the language, you have no family, no friends to call, no connections, you don't know where you're gonna lay your head that night, you have no idea where your next meal is coming from. It's just completely unimaginable to folks who haven't gone through it. Just thinking about it gives me anxiety. Luckily for Javier, though, Joanna had gone ahead and got him a place to live in Tijuana and was there waiting for him. It's always easier when somebody's there who loves you and supports you, 100%. But she had to scramble to get the place, so it isn't in the safest neighborhood. Do you ever feel in danger? Like, do you, does it, when you go out at night or anything, or no? I, I, I live with danger. I, I have to deal with it. You know, I can't let danger paralyze me, but... It does play a big part of everything I do. For example, I don't go out at night. I try to do everything I have to do in the daytime so I won't have to go out at night. They talked about having Joanna and the kids move to live with him in Tijuana. But Joanna has a job she loves and her kids are happy. So it just doesn't make any sense. Instead, for the last seven years, Joanna and the kids try to visit Javier as often as they possibly can. Most of the time, she'll drive the nine hours it takes to get from her house in the Oakland area to Javier's apartment in Tijuana. It's exhausting and expensive. And the physical and emotional stress has taken a toll. So, um... Through all this process, it's been also hard on my body, I can say. Um, besides the car drives, we lost two babies in the process. Our first baby was a, a boy, and we lost him in February 2016. And then we lost our daughter when I was four and a half months almost, June of 2017. At one point, Joanna didn't think the relationship would survive. It's hard. It's still hard. One day we just said, you know, we need to sit down and really talk and is this going to work or should we just be friends and you find somebody out there and me find somebody out here? Emma moved up to Tijuana from Los Cabos with her three boys into the house Michael had rented for the family. It's estimated that thousands of families use Tijuana the way Emma and Michael did, as a place that allows families to keep living their lives together, even though they're separated by a border wall. Michael worked two jobs back in San Diego to help pay the extra rent. He kept his house in Vista, an hour drive north of the border, so he could be close to his jobs. Emma says the Tijuana house was, quote, as big as her loneliness. Pues así de enorme como estaba la casa, así de enorme estaba mi soledad. Trataba de aguantarme, de no llorar, me escondía a veces a llorar en el baño para que ellos no me vieran. Yo les empecé a decir es que mami está time out, mami no puede ir a donde daddy hasta que mami no no esté time out. She's saying she would try not to cry, but when she couldn't help it, she would lock herself in the bathroom so her kids wouldn't see. Michael and Emma wanted the boys to get educated in the U.S. So one by one, as the boys grew up, they moved back to the U.S. to live with Michael and start school. 
Eventually, Emma was left all alone. Yo creía que tenía que siempre estar activa en algo mi mente para no volverme loca, para no estar deprimida. Nunca, nunca jamás me pasó la idea del suicidio. Yo decía, tengo que estar bien, tengo que, que estar un día con mis hijos y que me vean fuerte y me vean bien. Yo creo que esa esperanza siempre me mantuvo. She would cry sometimes saying, I'm stuck in Tijuana and I'm, I don't want to make you mad and everything. And I said, I'm not mad. I married you for better or worse. This just happens to be the worst. There's daylight over the hills. Just be patient, bite the bullet, and you'll get through it. Michael knew how lonely Emma was. So nearly every weekend, he'd pack the boys into his car. Oh, yeah, every weekend we would go down there. We'd go down, I'd take them down on Friday, leave them. If I had to work Saturday, I'd come back, work, and then go down again, and then bring them back. Many times being late, waiting at the long border waits. Six and a half, seven hour waits. That's how long I waited sometimes. In 2015, nine years after she was deported, Emma wanted to use her family's story to make a big, bold political statement. She asked Michael if they could renew their vows in a wedding ceremony at the actual border fence at a place called Friendship Park where the wall runs into the Pacific Ocean. So on July 19, 2015, Michael in his freshly pressed dress blues and Emma in a white wedding dress, white gloves and a veil held an outdoor wedding as surprise border patrol agents stood by. It gives me great pleasure to present this couple to you. Now married, Michael and Emma. Photos of the wedding they posted online quickly went viral. You know, how many people you know, a Marine gets married out of the country in another country in his dress blues with a Mexican lady. She made the San Diego Union Tribune front page during the Olympics. And the LA Times, she made front page on the LA Times also. The couple became something of an icon for other couples stuck in similar situations. You know, the, we're not giving up. My family's not giving up, and then I had a lot of people call me up and said, uh, good going, you're like a light at the end of the tunnel for a lot of people. Ultimately, Joanna and Javier decided their love was worth fighting for, despite the emotional and physical tolls. So they actually doubled down, and instead of breaking up, they got married. What I love about him is that he's not giving up. You know, he could have easily given up, and he didn't. 
what I love most about Joanna is her big heart. You know, she she has the biggest heart I know in a person. She inspires me to to do a lot. Javier has been an artist since he was a kid, and Joanna has always been one of his biggest fans and supporters. My wife, she knew that I liked to, I like that I liked art. So she bought me my first set of paints and brushes. So I started painting at first just to deal with my anxiety and my uh, depression a little bit. But it wasn't until prison and then his deportation that he really started thinking about art as more than just a hobby. So after one of her trips down to Tijuana to see him, Joanna decided to take some of Javier's artwork back with her to sell at pop-up events in Oakland. And people started buying it. Once my artwork started selling, I took it more serious, you know, I would paint every chance I get. And that's kind of when I took the leap of faith. I said, you know what, I'm just gonna go for it and I'm gonna try to be an artist full time. And I've been painting ever since and I haven't regretted it. Javier and Joanna's experience? There are a lot of other couples in the same boat. When Javier would first start picking me up at the border, we would see, and he would tell me, I see so many men out here and women waiting for their significant others to cross and be a family. We know we're not the only ones in this situation. So many families are navigating life after deportation. Lots of spouses actually end up moving to Mexico to keep their families together. There's even a Facebook support group called South of the Border Sisters for wives of deported husbands who live in Mexico. So the couple has stepped up to tell their story and advocate for families like theirs. We do want to speak about it because a lot of people don't want to speak about it. Javier also uses his own artwork on his Instagram page to talk about deportees and to advocate for people like him. People, he says, deserve a second chance at life in the U.S. I want people to understand, right? Some people, they, they look at me and they, they're like, oh, you know what, he's just an immigrant that came over here and committed a crime. I don't see it that way, you know. I grew up in Oakland all my life. I didn't get into trouble until I was 24 for the first time ever. To me, I was an American. I was not an immigrant that came and did a crime. I, was, I did a crime as an American. But then they took my papers away from me. Javier doesn't have a clear path back to the U.S. So unless lawmakers make some changes or someone with a lot of power takes special interest in his case, he's essentially banned from the U.S. for good. But he still holds hope that one day he'll be allowed back and he can finally, for the first time in his life, live under the same roof as his wife and kids. The November election made both Javier and Joanna feel like they might actually be one step closer to being together. I cried when Biden won. So this whole time, you know, we've been crossing our fingers and hoping that, you know, Biden would win so that I have a, a better chance. You know, right away, under the Biden administration, they're already talking about um, undoing a lot of stuff that, uh, that Trump did. So that's a good sign. 
Three years after Michael and Emma's wedding at the border, and 12 years after Emma was first deported, Emma's path back into the U.S. came into view. She reapplied for citizenship status and was approved. It took two years longer than they had hoped, but the day finally came. Fellow deported moms walked with Emma to the San Isidro port of entry, carrying flags. And Michael and the boys crossed into Tijuana so they could walk back through the border by Emma's side. One of her sons, who had joined the army, wore his military uniform. She was ready to go, and we crossed the border, and there were some people interviewing somebody, and they didn't show up, so they saw us, and they... They overheard us talking or something, and they asked if they could interview us. So they were taking pictures and uh, felt like we were celebrities. <laughs> I was like, wow. Uh, se sintió hermoso. Y mira que yo cuando estaba deportada allá en Tijuana, a veces yo decía, yo soñaba, yo decía, yo voy a entrar por la puerta grande, yo voy a llegar a Estados Unidos un día y voy a llegar por la puerta grande y voy a llegar que hasta los gabachos se van a poner contentos de que yo esté ahí en su país. Lo que era es que yo me daba como para papacharme, como para darme ánimo, ¿no? Emma is saying it felt amazing to walk through the big door, as she called it, the port of entry, like a dream come true. family across the border we got mom back so yeah it was a it was a great feeling it was like yes 12 years i did it i did it i did it <laughs> give myself a pat on the back <laughs> emma and michael have been living together in california ever since now i get to cuddle up with my wife at night kind of a weird feeling like i'm just got married again <laughs> Emma knows she broke the law, but she says a 10-year punishment is just way too steep a price to pay. The separation has had a lasting impact on their family. Pues hay mucho dolor con la situación que ha sucedido eh, a pesar de que yo los veía cada fin de semana, eh, no es lo mismo. Emma is saying she'll never be able to make up the time she missed raising her kids. Uno de mis hijos me dice que me ve como amiga, que no me ve como mamá. Yo tenía tanto deseo de poder ir a la escuela de mis hijos, de poder ir por ellos, de recogerlos. Esas cosas cotidianas que las mamás tal vez no valoran y que hacen cada día de llevar a sus hijos a la escuela o ir por ellos. Darles un beso que yo no podía. Emma says one of her kids even told her that because she was gone for so long, he can't help but see her as more of a friend than a mom. Y mi hijo me dice, mami, te veo como amiga, te veo como cualquier persona, es algo que te duele, te llega hasta el alma. Emma 
If you want to check out Javier's art focused on the deportee experience, look him up on Instagram. His handle is at deported artist. The art for this episode is actually one of his paintings. Next time on Port of Entry. The love is that these kids, they don't have anybody that's going to stand up for them except us. We wrap up our series of cross-border love stories with two women who dropped everything to care for some of the border region's most vulnerable kids. It's a story about how love can push a person to chart a completely new course. Port of Entry is written and produced by Kinsey Moreland. Emily Jankowski is the director of sound design. Elisa Barba edited this episode. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. Do us a big, big favor, and if you like this show, take out your phone right now and text someone and tell them about us. Word of mouth truly is the best way to get new people listening to this podcast. Thanks in advance for your help. I'm Alan Liliental. Thank you for listening. KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com.